Our sermon this morning is drawn from the psalm, which is right in line with this reading of God's word. Uh, the book of Psalms was given to God's people to be their primary songbook. It's 150 songs, uh, some of them so long that they would have to be counted as one <coughs> songs. So really, honestly, it's about 250 songs. Um, they're from the spirit of God. They're perfect in their worship. But one of the things that stands out concerning them is you can't read them without coming to realize there's a huge <laughs> amount in this book of Psalms that talk about enemies. It is for public worship. It is for the people of God to worship God together corporately. And over and over again, there is talk of our enemies. And Psalm 64 is rather ruthless about that. It is totally about the enemies of a godly man. Uh, the modern-day hymnal or the modern-day book of praise stands out conspicuously <coughs> when you put it side-by-side side with the Psalter for this. You will not find that enemies are totally absent, at least not from the hymn book. You do have songs like We Gather Together to Ask the Lord's Blessing, that talk about the wicked oppressing and the worshiper asks for uh, perseverance through that persecution. Uh, you have Faith of Our Fathers, which talks about fire and tumult and sword being brought against our fathers. But uh, really, it's far less present in the hymnal. And if you look in the modern praise book, it's hard to find unless they are literally paraphrasing the Psalms where it might come up. But in God's book of worship, the concept of having enemies are rather prominent. The truth is, if you wish to be godly, if you wish to follow God's will, you will have enemies in this world. It's an absolute guarantee. If you don't wish to follow God's will, if you wish to live a sinful life, you may or may not have enemies. You might, because that's the kind of world we live in. But you might get away with not having them if you are rebellious to the will of your creator and unconverted. But if you are converted... If you are brought into a right relationship with God through Christ, one of the things you can guarantee is that you will have enemies. Now, if you make them because of your sinful behavior, that's nothing to brag about. But even if you are perfectly faithful to God, you will have enemies. The Psalter is given to us in light of a promise that stands all the way through the Holy Scripture, uh, Paul sums it up in 2 Timothy 3.12, where he says very pointedly, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, all of them, all of them will suffer persecution. Uh, it's a promise of God. You can take it to the bank. It is a sign from God, to be honest, that you, in fact, belong to him. The world would not hate you if God did not love you. And when Jesus said to you to love your enemies, it would be a command you couldn't keep if you didn't have any. 
but it is a command given directly to all God's people. So there is a guarantee that enemies will be part of our lives. That is just something that is there. And it is the job of an enemy to make war. A friend can betray you, and betrayal is terrible. But an enemy, if he attacks you, if he tries to harm you, uh, that's his job description. That's what they're for. And so the Psalms and their focus on conflict are only realistic. If you're going to have enemies, they're going to actually try to hurt you. There's a promise in the book of Proverbs that when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he will make even his enemies live at peace with him. That does happen, but it doesn't change them from being enemies. It means that for this time period under God's hand, he providentially subdues their hostility, but they are still sitting over there being your enemies. Uh, It's not turned them into your friends. And in fact, it is proverbial, which means even the most righteous of men will have seasons where God doesn't make their enemies to be at peace with him. The most righteous of men was Jesus Christ, and during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, uh, God protected him from his enemies, but there was the cross, there was the arrest, and there were times when even his hometown wanted to drive him off a cliff and throw stones at him. So uh, if, if Christ, the godly man, had seasons of enemy activity, uh, the warfare of an enemy will be part of your life. You will not get to pass through life without conflict. In former times, the older theologians described the living church as the church militant. The church that had passed into God's presence, that was called the church triumphant. It was the church at rest. It was the church that enjoyed uh, peace and security for all the rest of time. But if you were alive, you were the church militant. You had no choice but to be militant. You were living on a battlefield. All who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You are the church militant. It's war. And what is war? It's conflict. When we use the term war, we think about the gun, the knife, the rocket, the infantry, but really the essence of war rarely rises to that occasion. If I were preaching today on the front lines of the Ukrainian conflict, uh, you would have no problem picturing war and men engaging in it because it'd be all around you. But the truth (coughs) is, just like murder starts in the heart as hatred, war develops, and it's very rare that you get to the drawn pistol or the, the charge of a bayonet. It has been said that politics are simply war by another means, and quite frankly, that's true. Human beings engage in political activities to subdue other men 
They want to subdue other men they hate. That's why they're active. Uh, politics is just another approach to war. And in all honesty, politics themselves are just kind of organized sociology. The entirety of humanity in relating one to another is effectively a relationship of hostility. You will have some friends, you will have some people who are as close to you as brothers, because they are brothers. It will take place in Christ. But in general, most of human sociological relating is a relationship of men striving for dominance, striving to have their way with other men, striving to get their selfish way in the world. Uh, that's what generally happens from sunup to sundown. It grows in its intensity, but not in its nature. Most war, the weapons that fight those war are weapons of words. In our psalm, David talks about his enemy, and he talks about his enemy being armed. He talks about his enemy being armed with a sharp sword, with a bow, with arrows, and those arrows, quote, are bitter. Uh, it seems to be a way of describing a poisoned arrow. But as you read through the rest of the psalm, it becomes very clear David is not saying they are using a physical sword on me or they have drawn a physical bow. It may come to that. But what David is talking about is he's talking about mere words, which we have been taught since childhood. Well, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, yada, yada, yada. Turns out words will kill you, and David is speaking without hyperbole when he describes them as something that can kill. The biblical picture of the tongue is very picturesque. James, the brother of our Lord, describes the tongue in these words. We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to be able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among the, our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the whole course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brother, <coughs> these things ought not to be so. <coughs> Using imagery for the tongue, that it is a sword, it is a bow, it is a poisoned arrow, 
is only appropriate when you're talking about something that is set on fire by hell, seems to be serving the intention of hell, is in specifically poisoned to bring the kingdom of evil onto this earth. David is using language that is just very appropriate. And when he describes the kind of war that the enemies of the godly will bring against them, uh, he wants you to understand very clearly that these attacks will be neither fair nor truthful, nor will they be proportionate. Uh, listen again to what David says. Um, they sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. This is a warfare that is one-sided. This is a warfare of uh, snipers. This is a warfare of an attack from secret. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. Uh, they talk of laying snares, traps in the woods. Uh, it's as if they're saying things about the godly will be like little landmines that the godly will step on. Um, they talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. And in fact, David commends them in a way at the end of that section by saying, surely the mind and heart of man is deep. Uh, the wicked will be the enemy of the godly. They will be very creative at doing it. They will use words to try to destroy the godly. Uh, and David has to step back and be fairly amazed at the creativity they come up with to do that. When I was chaplain in Iowa, we had a room at the prison where uh, there were trophies that the sheriff's department kept. These were items that the prisoners had made to be secret weapons that were utterly ingenious. They had ultimately been captured and been confiscated, but uh, people worked oh so hard and oh so create creatively to create a weapon in the prison. And some of them were just absolutely artistic. Uh, David is giving the same kind of nod of the hat to evil and its creativity. Um, you will have enemies, they will attack you, and they will be artistic in their attack. The very presence of the godly in the psalm causes the wicked to rise to the occasion. The very presence of the righteous causes them to band together. David pictures the wicked effectively being very separate from one another, and then the righteous come into their midst, and they suddenly realize we have a common enemy. Let's attack him. And they form committees, and they form clubs, and suddenly they're buddy-buddy. Because the very presence of God's people in the midst of the wicked uh, unifies them. There is no unification among men that ever lasts. The truth is, if you're looking for peace and brotherhood among humanity... Nothing lasting will ever be formed outside of Christ. But for a brief moment, you will see people holding arms and singing kumbaya 
if there is a true servant of God in their midst, because they will hate him, that will unify them. But if the psalm ended here, there would be no hope and no good news. But as you get down to the uh, last third of it, you have the word but in verse 7, and it's a promise. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. As assured as the psalmist wants you to be that your enemies will try to hurt you, he wants you to be just as sure there is nothing that happens outside of God's vision. The enemies of the righteous hide and they shoot from secret like snipers. But God knows their every position. He knows their every intent. He knows everything that they do. Like in the book of Zechariah that we have been looking at these last few weeks, God is measuring Zion. He is laying out his cords to look at everything. God is sending out his writers throughout the world to know exactly what's taking place. The wicked assume you will never know what hit you. That's literally a part of the psalm. You'll never know what the wicked did. They, they lay their snares with their words. You don't have any idea why you've been hurt. But God does know. And David steps off of the very famous uh, maxim that God says a couple of times in Scripture, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Uh, And he emphasizes the last part. (coughs) Vengeance is God's, and he will repay. For every arrow shot at the righteous, God will fire his own. And you will notice that in this psalm, the arrows of God can't miss. The wicked uh, pat themselves on the back at how well they can do at striking at God's people. And yes, they are wonderful marksmen, but they are not inerrant. The one who takes up the bow for us cannot miss. God will shoot at them suddenly. God will hit them. There is no sense that there will be a miss. God will repay everything done to the righteous, and it will be appropriate, proportional, and from his own hand. This cannot be but seen in the life of our Lord. Jesus Christ is born, and he is a mere two years old. And in Matthew's gospel, what do we read? But when men come to worship him, we have Herod begin to use his lips and ask, where is this child to be born? Uh, Go and find him, that I may worship him too. What is Herod doing but living out Psalm 64? He is using his tongue to try to destroy our Lord Christ when our Lord Christ is but a mere toddler and has never met him and has never done him any harm. He is the embodiment of righteousness. He is literally the only innocent in the world And Herod is using his words to lay traps and snares to destroy the righteous. 
at the time of our Lord's crucifixion and his resurrection, what do we see but the truth of this psalm? Uh, the Sanhedrin gather together and they say, let's find false witnesses. We can't find any true witnesses. Let's find false ones. Let's scheme together and find some way to destroy this one who uh, has united us. (coughs) For most Christians, when they hear the term Pharisee, they immediately will think of Pharisees and Sadducees because they are so connected in the New Testament. The gospel writers will say, now the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you would get the idea that these people are friends. But nothing could be further from the truth. The fact of the matter is, is that the Pharisee in Scripture is very much like the... the conservative of our culture who is a hypocrite and a rebel against God. And the Sadducee is very much like the liberal who is a hypocrite and a rebel against God. Uh, And just like in our culture where conservative and liberal literally can't stand each other and will crucify one another if they get an opportunity, that is exactly the way the world was at the time of our Lord. The Pharisees murdered Sadducees on a rather regular basis, the Sadducees tried to exterminate the Pharisees with crosses and murder on a relatively regular basis. They're not friends in any way. But the presence of the innocent, the presence of the righteous, the presence of God working among men, that brings them together. And so the gospel writers are not wrong when they say the Pharisees and Sadducees are hand in hand and glove in glove. They have found something that they hate. They hate the presence of the godly. They hate the presence of the good. Our Lord himself, more godly than we can ever imagine being, it is exactly his godliness that causes them to hate him. It is his innocence that caused them to want to take him to court. It is his harmlessness that makes them want to harm him. He is the very embodiment of this psalm that is simply 2 Timothy 3.12. If you look for Christ in this psalm, you find him as the godly man who has to cry out to God for deliverance because he is moving through a world that is ungodly, and the ungodly world will lift up its weapons against the godly, and its greatest weapon will be its tongue, and we see our Lord suffering that. But God will bring vengeance. We are promised that. And the end of the psalm is that men will see God act, and men will celebrate God and glorify him. But it's a specific kind of thing. It is specifically, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. God in his time will act, and will the world then be uh, humbled and say, well, you know, we, we rose up against the righteous. God has put us in our place. We will repent. Absolutely not. In the 
Renaissance, the cry of the Renaissance man was, why does God allow wars to happen? Why does God allow evil to take place on earth? Oh, and God is a monster because he destroyed the ancient world with a flood. Let those two things sink in for a second. The unconverted person hates God. He will not be subdued by God bringing wrath down upon him. Uh, even if it is the wrath of his own tongue becomes his own destroyer, which the psalm says it will. But God's people will rejoice. God will be glorified in his people. And we are left with the hope that this will take place. But there is a petition. The psalm is given to us as a prayer, not just a celebration of the fact that God will not allow our enemies to have the last word. The petition is in the first verse. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. The power here is God's. If we were left alone in this world of slander, of the tongue, of the poisoned pen, uh, our wicked enemies would succeed with their weapons. And the psalmist cries out, Lord, preserve me. He does not cry out using the term, deliver me, though the psalmist will cry that out many places. He cries out, Lord, preserve me. If God desired, he could, in fact, remove his godly people from this wicked world. That could happen this very moment. And in fact, there is a whole family of God's people who are longing for something they call the rapture, which is literally God to bivouac the church out of the wicked world. Uh, it's up to God what God wants to do, but we have had 6,000 years of human history where God has chosen not to do that. So the very God who has promised us, I will fire back, I will defend you, I will bring them down, I will cause them to fall in their own pits, I will let the very words they spoke be true of them. I also will leave you in this world, but I will deliver you from fear of the enemy. The truth is, the enemy's greatest power is not external, but internal. The enemy can destroy the body if he moves from language to weapon, but his great success is if fear in the heart causes the man to corrupt. And we are all truly subject to that. We have no greater uh, danger than fear and cowardice and uh, trembling take hold of the inner man. And through that, we be brought to defeat long before the battle ever happens. And in fact, that is what the wicked world wants to do to God's people. It wants to instill in you a fear. It wants you to be afraid to walk in righteousness, wants you to be afraid to speak righteousness, wants you to be afraid to lift your head in any way. And that fear striking in your own heart is a very real thing. You are a mortal person. Uh, mortal people may say, 
that which is outside of me, I just let it slough off my back. But we are not islands. We are, in fact, connected. And so David cries out at the beginning of the psalm, deliver me not from the enemy, though he'll get there, but from the fear that the enemy works in my heart. My heart. Only God can reach into your heart and remove fear. Therefore, turn to God and ask it to be removed. It has well been pointed out that 365 places in Scripture, God says, fear not. God is willing to deal with fear. David cries out for deliverance from fear and to persevere through the enemy's attacks, even though they will come. I find it interesting that in most hymn books, the song we gather together will have the line, let thy congregation escape tribulation. Uh, That's not really actually what our Reformed forefathers were praying about. They knew they would have to go through the tribulation of the world. They know that just like the Apostle of Christ told the elders at Ephesus, it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They knew that God's will was through the violence of the world. Rather, what they were truly praying about was, let thy congregation preserve through tribulation. And that is what our hymnal says. Uh, The prayer of the saint is not to be delivered from the hatred of the world. If that is your prayer, if your prayer is, let me be totally free to, to enter heaven on flowery beds of ease carried there by angels, you're asking for something that was not given to Jesus Christ. He who was innocent, he who was perfect, he endured such contempt from wicked men for our sakes. Will we pray, Lord, let us not see that? David doesn't pray that. And in fact, in his last (coughs) words, his very last words were, as a ruler in God's kingdom, I had to take my spear to those who would destroy it. But in Psalm 64, he does pray, preserve me from fear and preserve me from their plots. You have called me to be the church militant. I will be like Christ. They used their tongues against him at his birth. They used their tongues against him as he did his ministry, as he preached the gospel of himself and set sinners free. They said of him, oh, it is simply by the prince of the devils that he works his works. They brought lies against him in his trial. They set up a kangaroo court against him. All the while, their tongues were their weapons. And if our Lord went through that, you will go through that. But the great promise is the Lord will fire his arrow. And where is those who use their tongues against our Lord? Where do they reside now? What power do they possess? What blessings do they hold? Our Lord knows how to fire his arrow. That is not a problem. Let us trust our preservation to him, just as the greater David did.